Well, good morning. This morning we'll continue our study of the book of Acts, starting with Acts 20, verse 1, and going through verse 16. I've titled this, Paul Begins His Journey to Jerusalem. Paul's third apostolic journey was well over three years. Most of the time was spent in Ephesus, where he conducted a discipleship training program that perhaps was the greatest ever and arguably produces the most impact in the history of the Ecclesia. Luke recorded that because of the two-year daily discipleship training, then all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, Acts 19, verse 10. Now, that might be hyperbole there, but I think it's saying there was an incredible impact that came from this discipleship program. This is a startling statement. All the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord because of a two-year program of discipleship training in Ephesus. Well, I think that there's something there for us to really pay attention to, and that is our discipleship programs today are few and far between, and yet they are the things that might produce the most fruit. We're desperate to try to win people to Christ. We're desperate for evangelism, and we don't know how to do it well. We think we evangelize by talking. Evangelism, first and foremost, comes by living, and that's what Jesus tells us in Matthew 5. If you want to be light, which that's the heart of evangelism, is being light, you don't talk your way into being light. You live your way. That is, you do the will of God according to the ways of God and the timing of God for the glory of God. When you live that way, that strategically, then you become light, and the Holy Spirit will use you in whatever way he chooses to draw people to Christ. Well, I think that's what happened in Ephesus during this two-year program is the focus was on alignment with God, people lining up with the will and ways of God, and they got so infected with Jesus that they became contagious. And so that's why all of Asia heard the word of the Lord. So in Acts 20 now, we are, we've come to the end of Paul's time in Ephesus, and Paul begins his journey back. And the way he's going to go back and he's not going to go back to Antioch. He's going to go back to Jerusalem. But he starts his journey by revisiting some places he had visited on his second journey. He went back into Macedonia, which is where Philippi was, and, and where, uh, where uh, you, you find Thessalonica and Berea, and then into Achaia, where you find Athens and you find Corinth. So he goes back and visits these places again, encouraging the disciples. He wasn't going back for evangelism. Did he do evangelism? Well, probably his custom was to go to the synagogues and share in the synagogues to the biblically literate people. If he was invited into the marketplace as he was in Athens in Acts 17, then he would do that. But he was definitely focused on the disciples. So the text tells us that's what he was doing. He was, he was encouraging the many disciples. And the way he's encouraging them is encouraging them to live holy lives. That's what the Apostle Paul was about, encouraging holiness in everyone who came to Christ. So he's part of that journey is he spent a week in Troas where he got a, we get a glimpse of what some of the early practices of the church were. In other words, we, we, get, we get to drill down on one city where Paul spent some time, particularly he spent the Lord's day with this one city, and we'll see what happened there, and we'll learn some lessons about how this early, the early Ecclesia perhaps practiced, you know, Christianity. 
from there, he's going to travel to Miletus. He's going to call the elders of Ephesus to him. Miletus is about 30 miles away from Ephesus. So you're talking about a, a day's journey, maybe a little longer for them to get there. But he only wants to talk to the leaders because he's got so many relationships in Ephesus. If he gets there, it'll be very hard to leave. And he's, he's on a schedule. He's trying to get to Jerusalem before the day of Pentecost. And he left Philippi. Uh, that uh, basically right after the uh, Feast of Unleavened Bread. So he has 50 days from the time he left Philippi to go to Troas, to go to Miletus, and then get to Jerusalem. So uh, this, that's a tight journey back in those days when you're walking and going by boat. 50 days would be a tight journey from, from Philippi to Jerusalem. So we're getting a glimpse of that journey and what he did. Paul is clearly entering the last phase of his life because after Jerusalem, he's going to Rome and that's where he wants to go. And we know that that's, we believe that's where he was martyred. So we are probably seeing the glimpse of the last phase of Paul's life here as we enter this last eight chapters of the book of Acts. So it's interesting that we have so much focus now on Paul and the end of his life and how he finished his race well. Hopefully this will be inspiring to all of us because we will all at some point enter our final phase of life and we want to run that race well with great determination and clarity on what God has called us to do. So let's jump in and take a look at what we can find out about Paul and his his perspective as he lived life in his last phase started with Acts 20 verse 1. After the uproar was over, this is referring to the riot in Ephesus protesting the Christians beginning to use money properly and they stopped supporting the idols. That created an economic crisis for those who dealt with idols, who made them and sold them. So they they created this great riot. Of course, riots just cre create chaos and confusion. Those are marks of the spirit of Antichrist. And the Holy Spirit handled this beautifully, and he used the pagans to handle it. And that's what he can do. He many times can use the pagans to handle the pagans. Sometimes he'll use the Christians to handle the pagans. But in this case, he used the pagans to handle the pagans. So he took care of the riot without the Christians having to do anything. They were just bystanders in all this. And the main thing was they were trying to keep Paul from getting engaged with the riot because he wanted to run out there and get in the middle of it and try to stop it. And he probably would not have had success. So he was held back and he obediently listened to those who were wiser than he. So that's what the uproar was. So that was over. And Paul sent for his disciples. Now, this is in Ephesus, so we don't know how many disciples there were at that point. This is after three years, so there may have been many of them. Who knows? We don't have a clue. We just know that he sent for them. He encouraged them, as he always did, because Paul's focus was on discipleship. It wasn't on evangelism. Verse 2. So he departs to go, to go to Macedonia, and when he had passed through these areas and offered them many words of encouragement, you know, he came to Greece. So, so Macedonia, where Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea are, down into Greece, where you have Athens and Corinth. So this is where he was. These places that he had been before, it's possible that while he was in Corinth, he actually wrote the letter to the Romans. There's reason to believe that based on what the book of Romans says. 
and we know this is probably the venue where he would have that opportunity. And Paul is certainly entering the phase of his life where he's got the most clarity on what Christianity is. And of course, the book of Romans shows great clarity on the doctrines of the faith. So it's very likely that he wrote the letter here while, while he's on this, this final journey. And he stayed there three months in Greece, which is plenty of time for him to write that letter. The Jews plotted against him, which was very common. In fact, throughout his apostolic work, you find the Jews plotting against him. You go back to chapter 13, when he was at Antioch, Pisidia. They became jealous and they incited a division and, and stirred people up about against him. In Lystra, that's where he was stoned the first time and drug out of the city. They thought he was dead, but he wasn't dead. And then you go in the second journey at Philippi. Again, we have a riot, again, caused by economic calamity. See, Christianity, when you properly practice it, it changes economics. I hope you can recognize as you look at the economies of the world today that they're given over to the spirit of Antichrist, which means money is being used incorrectly. Massive debt assigned to the spirit of Antichrist. All the money that goes into pleasure, comfort, and convenience assigned to the Antichrist. But when Christians begin to steward resources correctly, that stops. The debt goes down, and we don't support you know, things like entertainment, that doesn't become the big deal. We begin to use money wisely to serve the purpose of God and others. So that creates economic calamity for those that are that are basically peddling sin. And we have largely a world that's peddling sin today. So he was persecuted for that. When he gets to Thessalonica, the Jews show up again. They're jealous of him and they stir people up. He gets to Berea, the Thessalonican Jews come and stir up people there. And he gets to Corinth. And he, got, he has, again, more Jews stirring up trouble. So finally, we are here in Acts, in Acts chapter 20, and we have the Jews showing up again, developing these plots of how they're going to mess with Paul. So Paul knows enough about them to know they're dangerous people. Uh, we need to recognize that we can't just go step into any battle. We have grace to step into the battles we're called to, but you don't step into battles you're not called to fight. You know, you need to have respect for the, the, the enemy and what he can do, and you need to be sure you're hearing clearly about whether you engage or don't engage. So here Paul hears these plots, and he decides the best thing to do is not engage. So they set sail for Syria, and so he decided to go back through Macedonia. So Syria is, back, back, is, is basically where he's going to go to go to Jerusalem, but he's going to backtrack. He's down in Achaia. He's going to go back up to Macedonia and catch a ship up there, thinking, I think, that the Jews wouldn't expect him to do that. So he'll surprise them because he's probably expecting that uh, they're going to they look for him at the at the port of Corinth. Corinth is a, a port. It's a port city. It has ports, has two ports, one on there are two different seas that borders. It's between two seas. So it's got ports on both seas. So they're probably looking for him at one of those, both of those ports. And he's saying, okay, I'm not going to go there. I'm going to go back up to Macedonia and set sail from there. So verse four, and he was accompanied by Sopater, <coughs> a son of Pyrrhus from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derby, Timothy and Tychicus and Trophimus from the province of Asia. So these are clearly his traveling companions. I'm going to suggest they're his disciples on some level. These men went on ahead of us and waited us for us at Troas. In other words, they apparently 
departed while they're all in uh, in Achaia together, and they went unimpeded to Troas, while Paul went up to Macedonia, which ultimately he went to Philippi, and eventually in Philippi, then he set sail away from Philippi after the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and they reconvene in Troas. And the next part of the chapter is going to talk about uh, the events in Troas and what we can learn about how the early Christians gathered together. But first, I want to just point out to you uh, something about these disciples, and we're going to come back to this a little bit later. These, these are men that appear to be men that were not only accompanying him, but they were probably his serving him. They were probably being discipled by him, and they were probably being prepared for carrying on his work after he's gone. So I'm going to come back to this when I talk about the theology. I'm going to talk about the disciples of Paul, but I just want you to make note, these are very, these are critical men giving us clues, just like Jesus had his 12. Well, we're going to see later on, Paul had at least 18, and Jesus had had three that he focused on. Paul had at least two. Jesus had a Judas, and Paul actually had four who who chucked the faith on him. So we're going to show that. We'll talk about that when we get to the the theology portion of this. But let me go on to verse the rest of verse six here. In five days we reached them at Troas. So now you see uh, the we statement. This is the second we passage. That means Luke is with him. There are four we passages in the book of Acts, Acts 16, 10 through 17, Acts 20, verses 5 through 15, Acts 21, 1 through 8, Acts 27, 1 through 28, 16. So this is where Luke is clearly with the apostle. We don't know why he was with him at times and other times he was not. It appears that Luke was Maybe maybe uh, from Philippi, that may have been where he's from because that's where we first encounter him is in Philippi. We It's just hard to know, but Luke became a traveling companion to some extent with him. So now we have him with, with Paul in Troas. And on the first day of the week, we assembled to break bread. Now we is obviously Luke, but it's probably also the other disciples that had been waiting for him there and and people beyond that because we're going we're gonna to talk about a man named Eutychus who was there as well. So we don't know how many people were there. Now, it's this is not an evangelistic meeting. It's not. It doesn't appear to be an open-door meeting. It's not the kind of meeting that most people would go to. It's the only, the only way people go to a meeting that's going to last all night is if they're really committed disciples. So I think it's fair to say this was a meeting of disciples, something that we don't do too often today in our paradigm of Christianity because we're so concerned about evangelizing that we want to make every meeting an opportunity for evangelism. Well, Paul wasn't this concerned as we are. He was fully aware that the Holy Spirit will regenerate as his sovereign pleasure, and our job is to live holy lives. When you focus on trying to evangelize, you neglect you're learning how to live a holy life. And so you cease being light. And so now evangelism becomes really hard. We saw in Acts 19 that when people got pregnant and got full of Christ by, by consistent discipleship for two years, it exploded into evangelism. That's probably a far better model. Evangelism through discipleship, not evangelism through talking. We have to learn to live it. That's the key to going forward. So we have the disciples gathered here. Paul spoke to them, and since he was about to depart the next day, he kept on talking until midnight. Paul is trying to make 
make uh, make use of every moment he's got to communicate truth. Paul, at this point, was so full of truth that he could conduct a two-year discipleship training program where they met every day, and it appears they met for several hours every day, and Paul worked part of the day. Paul had probably very little time for prep, but he had so much in him, he didn't need much prep. Oh, I long for that. I have so much of Jesus and understanding of scripture in me that I don't have to do much prep. That just gives you the ability to do a whole lot more impartation. So he kept on talking until midnight. And there were many lamps in the room uh, upstairs where we were assembled. And there was a young man named Eutychus. Eutychus means fortunate, which that's an interesting name. But he was sitting on a window seal and he sank into a deep sleep as Paul kept on talking. And when he was overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story. Notice that the third story and was picked up dead. Now, if if their stories were eight feet, our stories are typically 10 feet. So that would be about, you know, close to 30 feet in today's way we build. But maybe back then it wasn't quite that. Maybe it was more like 20 to 25 feet. But still, that's very, very adequate to kill you. And particularly if the the ground underneath you was hard, like it was stone. We don't know that for sure either. But certainly the people thought he was dead. He was picked up dead. That's the way they thought. Now, Paul went down and he bent over him, embraced them and said, don't be alarmed because he's alive. See, everybody thought he's dead. Paul said, no, nope, he's alive. And after going upstairs, apparently they carried him upstairs and then they're breaking the bread and eating. Now, you'll notice here, uh, I've underlined this phrase, and I want to point you back up to uh, the last part of verse 6, and I'll get my laser pointer going here. You can see right here, it says, we assembled to break bread, and here it talks about breaking the bread. The definite article is used. That definite article is there. These, the translation is correct. There's no definite article in verse 7, and in verse uh, 11, there is the definite article. So it appears that the breaking of the bread was communion. That's what they were doing. And they went upstairs and had communion. Now, I don't know at what point that it became clear that Eutychus was alive, but at some point it became clear in this process between don't be alarmed because he's alive and breaking her bread, they became aware that he was alive and eating. So they going upstairs, breaking the bread and eating. So they had communion and apparently had a meal as well. And Paul talked a long time until dawn. Then he left. Wow. You could never do an evangelistic meeting like that where you talk a long time. That wasn't work. You wouldn't be able to do it all night. But you have disciples that will sacrifice to hear truth to have a heart for the word, to want to know the truth about who God is and how he works and what scripture says about him, they will, that real disciples will sacrifice for truth. So that's a big question for all of us. How much will we sacrifice to hear truth? What will price will we pay to get the truth? We're told to buy truth and don't sell it. That's what you see in the book of Proverbs. Buy wisdom and don't sell it. We need to be hungry for truth and be willing to sacrifice for truth. I remember one time I was talking with a gentleman about going to a conference, and um, I told him, you know, I think you're supposed to go to this conference. 
uh, I, this has just come to me as I prayed over you and your wife and felt like you're supposed to go. And, and he said, oh, okay. So uh, he went home and they talked about it. I saw him a few days later and I said, are you going to go? And he said, no, we're not going to go. I said, well, why not? And he said, oh, we don't have the money. I said, well, how did you determine it? Well, we just looked at our bank account. I said, did you and your wife pray about this? He said, well, no. I said, can you be open that God may be creative? Maybe you just look in the natural and you need to look you know, with metaphysical awareness to see if there might be provision that you hadn't considered before. We said, no, I never thought about that. Well, go pray with your wife. So he went home and prayed with his wife. I saw him a few days after that. And, and he came up to me, he says, guess what? I said, what? He said, my wife and I prayed about it. And we suddenly realized that we had the air miles in our account to pay for the event. It covered everything. And we had not seen that before. I said, well, that's what happens when you live in the natural. If all you do is go by what you see, you're trusting yourself. You're not trusting the Lord. You know, God has very creative ways to provide for us. We've got to learn to live with him, to walk with him. And if we don't do that, we'll we'll really miss out what, what he really wants to do in our life. I hope you can hear this. This is a big, big lesson. We tend to live by sight. We don't live by faith. So Paul, Paul talked a long time, and people there were willing to sacrifice their sleep and risk their life. I mean, here a guy falls out of the window to hear the apostle speak truth. One of the things that, I, that came up in this conversation with this couple when I, was the question of, well, you don't think you have the money, but are you still eating out? And they said, yes. I said, well, you could stop eating out and save the money. And he said, well, I never thought about that because we don't think about making sacrifices to get to truth. These people were willing to make sacrifices. We should learn how to do that. They brought the boy home alive and were greatly comforted. The word comfort is the word parakaleo. It's the word for encouraged. They're encouraged because they see the Lord's mercy and grace. They also see the Lord's provision, and they see how the sacrifice of being all night with the apostle and hearing his teaching was worth it. It was well worth it. Then verse 13, we went ahead on the ship and sailed for Assos, and where we were going to take Paul on board, because these were his instructions since he himself was going by land. So you see part of them are going to, by boat and Paul goes overland. He, he's going to walk and they're going to meet up in this city called Assos, which it is not far away. It's probably a day or so journey for Paul to go from Troas to Assos. And the ship has to go around kind of a, a circuitous course to get there. But when they got there, they join up again, they get on board and they go down to Mytilene and sailing from there, they went on to, to arrive off Chios. And the following day, they went to Samos. And the day after, they get to Miletus, the province of Asia, because he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem, if possible, for the day of Pentecost. So he will call the next verse in verse 17, we'll pick up next time. He will call the elders of Ephesus to him so he can communicate with them and wish them and bless them one final time, and he knows I can't go to Ephesus. I have too many relationships there. I can't risk going there. I've, I've got a schedule I've got to meet. So he's he's living these last days with great intentionality, great purpose, 
great sense of what he should do, what he shouldn't do. He was very, very tuned into that. And really, the rest of the book is about recognizing how Paul was able to distinguish the should from the could. So we'll look forward to seeing that as we go through that. But let me give you some theological points here. First, I want to talk about Paul's disciples. Luke seemed to take to heart the discipleship mandate of Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Much of the record of Acts is about the disciples. In the book of Acts, the word, the Greek word, methetaeus, is used over 30 times. That's a, that's a follower, a learner, a disciplined learner, the follower of someone else. That's what the word disciple means. The first use of disciple is in Acts 6, referring to the early church. There were disciples in it. Followers of Jesus began to emerge early on because these people were all highly biblically literate. And so all that had to be explained to them was Jesus was Lord in Christ, and boom, a lot of truth became very clear in the Old Testament. Today, we largely are around people who are biblically illiterate. They don't know the Old Testament well, so they have to learn a whole lot before they can begin to gain the insight that these early disciples were getting very quickly. So this is why it's hard to compare the first six chapters of Acts to what we experience today. It's a very different environment. I see a lot of people trying to extract a lot of, of, of lessons from Acts 6, and you have to be care or Acts 1 through 6. You have to be careful about that. Pay attention to the context. Pay attention to the difference between highly biblically literate people and biblically illiterate people like we have today. It's very different. In Acts 9, the word disciple is used again in two ways. One, it's, they're, they're the target of Paul's persecution, and then it's those same people that are disciples that would save Paul from the Jews after his conversion because the Jews turned on Paul when Paul turned to Christ. On his first apostolic journey, you see the word disciple is used again of the fruit of Paul's work in and around Antioch and Pisidia, which is one of the first major cities he spent time in. Then after going to Lystra and being stoned, and, uh, and though Paul wasn't killed, he thought he was killed, he spent the night in Lystra and he traveled into Derby, where again, he made disciples there. And Luke recorded the incident in these words. After the disciples gathered around Paul, this is in Lystra after he's been stoned, he got up and went into town, went into Lystra, spent the night there. The next day he left from with Barnabas for Derby. And after they preached the gospel, that is the good news of Jesus being Lord in Christ in that town and, many, and made many disciples. So if you made many disciples quickly, you know they were biblically literate people. Biblically illiterate people wouldn't know what to do with that message. It took biblically literate people to be quick learners of the truth. They returned to Lystra, Iconium, to Antioch, strengthening the disciples. It's not the converts, it's disciples by encouraging them to continue in the faith, by telling them it is necessary to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. So this is what, this is getting a picture of how Paul was thinking and functioning early on. After returning to Antioch, it says there that Paul spent considerable time with the disciples, Acts 14, 28. And from Acts 15 to 21, there are 11 more occurrences of the word for disciple. Clearly, Paul's objective was to make disciples of Jesus. Not once do we talk about converts. That's what we talk about today. Paul talked about disciples. He put his time into making disciples. So what can we learn about discipleship from the Apostle Paul? There are at least 18 men who at various times were traveling companions of Paul. 
Of these, one, Barnabas, appeared to function as a father figure as well as a disciple. That's a very interesting situation where you can have a father figure actually become one of your disciples. Two were specifically called sons, that is Timothy and Titus. Among the traveling companions were Luke and John Mark, whose records of the life of Christ were ultimately recognized as divinely inspired and included in the New Testament canon. However, there were four associated with Paul, Demas, Hymenaeus, Alexander, and Philetus, who abandoned Christianity. Demas loved the present age. Hymenaeus was a blasphemer. Alexander was a blasphemer and a false teacher. And Philetus was a false teacher. So Jesus had his Judas, and Paul had his Demas, Hymenaeus, Alexander, and Philetus. Now those all show up in various epistles that we have from the Apostle Paul. Paul's discipleship work modeled Jesus. He focused on the disciples and touched the masses following the example of Jesus. Let me repeat that. Both Jesus and Paul focused on the disciples and touched the masses. Today, we do the opposite. We focus on the masses and only touch the disciples. Perhaps this is why Christianity is so weak today. We're not following the pattern of Jesus and Paul. Scripture records that Jesus had 12 disciples of whom three were his closest and one Judas was a traitor. And Paul records, uh, Scripture records that Paul had at least 18 disciples of whom two were spiritual sons, who were that were the closest ones, and four were traitors. So there's not a magic number here of 12 or 18, but there's a pattern. You're going to have a group of disciples. You're going to have a few that are going to be really close, and you're going to have some traitors, and you're going to have those in between. So I think that's the pattern that you can expect. Jesus clearly functioned at the highest level of obedience to the Father, perfect sinlessness. The Apostle Paul functioned at a high level, but not sinless. His ability to function at this level developed over time. So he got increasingly better and better. On the third mission journey, third apostolic journey, he was getting very, very mature in the Lord. So he's beginning to see and recognize how to use his time wisely. In his first journey, he did go and look for places where he could spend more time with evangelism. But over time, he spent more and more time with discipleship. Beginning with this encounter with Jesus in Acts 9, Paul grew and matured in Christ. By the time he spent three years in Ephesus, there was much truth in him that he could teach, so much truth that he could teach every day for two years while still working part-time as a tent maker. This means he had little time for teaching prep. Furthermore, as with Jesus, God confirmed Paul and his message through powerful works. In Lystra, Paul was stoned and left for dead, but it was not dead. That was a powerful work. By the way, he was stoned because he healed a person. And the jealous Jews stirred up the crowd when Paul tried to explain that the Greek gods were not the reason for the healing. It was another god. So the, the Jews were able to persuade the crowds to turn on him and stone him. In Philippi, he was incarcerated for casting out a demon and supernaturally freed from prison. His work, <clears throat> clothing, was used as an instrument of healing and exorcism in Acts 19. So you see, all around Paul are these supernatural acts. Paul is not doing them. They are being done for him and through him. He's not doing them. So this is what happens when you get a profound revelation of Christ in you. You, you will probably start seeing these things happen. <clears throat> we have a culture of Christianity today that's pursuing the supernatural, without the maturity. That will not go well. That will not be effective. 
you you grow in Christ, grow in holiness. You don't seek the supernatural. The supernatural will happen. The three years in Ephesus was the longest time Paul spent at any one location on any of his apostolic journeys. Notwithstanding his evangelistic efforts in every place, his greatest work was surely the two-year discipleship initiative in Ephesus, the fruit of which was the evangelism of all of Asia through discipleship. Like Jesus, Paul modeled a life committed to producing disciples. He obeyed the discipleship mandate. Discipleship mandate is not a mandate to world evangelism as commonly assumed today. It's a mandate to discipleship of all ethnicities. That is what Paul and Jesus you know, did, what Jesus meant, what Paul did. To do this, disciples must focus on disciples, those who are humble, submitted, and teachable, and when one's making true disciples, evangelism will happen. You don't have to fret over that or be concerned about that. Let me give you a word of application. So let me turn to our, our dear friend, Billy Graham. When Billy Graham was asked for a plan of success as a spiritual leader, his response was this, and I'm quoting. I think one of the first things I would do would be to get a small group of eight or 10 or 12 men around me that would meet a few times a week and pay the price. It would cost them something in time and effort. I would share with them everything I have over a period of years. Christ set the pattern. He spent most of his time with 12 men. He didn't spend it with great crowds. In fact, every time he had a great crowd, it seems to me that there weren't too many results. Now, this is a startling statement from a man who conducted over 417 crusades, drew over 215 million people to these crusades, and yet he's making this statement that debunks the very things that he did earlier in his life. Obviously, he's made this statement at the end of his life. That's when people were asking him, what would you do differently? And this is one of the comments he made. He recognized the priority that Jesus placed on investing time in discipling people rather than engaging events and drawing crowds. He recognized the authority of Jesus's life as a pattern for all Christians to follow. Well, that's probably a very wise man. Jesus had some large gatherings. He did. He was compassionate toward the crowds, but he did not seek them out. They just happened. They tend to gather to him, particularly if he was doing something that was supernatural. That tended to draw a little bit of crowd. But Jesus also denounced them when they failed to repent. You see, Jesus was not doing the supernatural events to tickle their itch. He was doing the, the supernatural work to convict them of sin so they would repent and turn to the truth. Jesus chose 12 men to be his disciples and spent three years investing his life in them so they could carry on his legacy. Jesus modeled for us how to live by focusing on the disciples and touching the masses. So what authority do we have to change this model? Furthermore, Jesus was immersed in scripture from an early age. At age 12, he, he could converse with and amaze the great, greatest theologians of the day. From age 12 to 13, he was a carpenter, submitted to his adopted father, Joseph. And after the season's up, he spends three years investing in 12 men, largely, who would carry on his legacy after he's gone. His legacy was to build his ecclesia. Jesus's destiny was to die on the cross. That was his purpose in life, but his legacy was to build his ecclesia. The apostle Paul followed the pattern of Jesus. He was a tent maker. 
and a highly biblically literate teacher. Neither Jesus nor Paul sought to build buildings or organizations, rather they sought to build people, disciples. Scripture records that Paul had at least 18 disciples. His two closest were Timothy and Titus, who were called true sons. These men served as his legates, that is, they went out to do his bidding. Some of the others whom we know little about faithfully served, and four others abandoned him, being lured by the worldly pleasures and deceived by, into blasphemy and false teaching. Perhaps Paul is comforted knowing that even Jesus had his Judas. And perhaps a lesson for Billy Graham, Jesus, Jesus, and Paul is that discipleship is neither glamorous nor easy, but it is the way of the Lord. Drawing crowds and big, doing big events can stroke personal ego, but there's little fruit. True discipleship is like raising children. It is a long-term process with many highs and lows. There's little glamour and a lot of hard work. There's, this is the way of discipleship as God defined and Jesus modeled it. Paul imitated it, and Billy Graham at the end of his life acknowledged it as well. Should we not do the same? Or will we choose the glitz and glamour of the big events? May we have the grace to humble ourselves and measure success as Jesus and Paul did by committing to a lifestyle of facilitating discipleship in the lives of those whom we are called to serve. May we so live in Jesus' name. Amen.